Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. And let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. So we're going to be very blunt in our conversation today. It's about cannabis and the rollout of the cannabis regulations in New York, the challenges of banking an industry that is illegal federally with Peter Sue, who is a cannabis banking executive. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me on. And I, I like it. We're going to be blunt today. Very, very <laughs> you like clever. that? It's going to be a very, we're going to get in the weeds of it <laughs> Okay. <laughs> about how maybe some of these plants have got up in smoke. No, I'm sorry. I'm going to stop with the puns now. Don't worry. <laughs> so you're a senior vice president at Green Check Verified, which is a premier cannabis banking consultancy provider in this industry. But it's been mm-hmm. a challenge because it is illegal federally. So there are, I mean, I want to talk about that just for a couple of minutes, what the challenges are for banking and industry that you really can't bank in? Yes. Yes. That's actually a very succinct way of summarizing it. If you think about it from the bank's perspective or or any financial institution for that matter, there is a legal obligation to prevent money laundering, illicit funds from entering the, the financial system. Right. Here, the issue, of course, is that we have a discrepancy between federal and state law. So in many states now, there's some form of legalization, whether it's medical and or, you know, full adult use. As a result of that, you have this sort of a dual system where, you know, on paper, federally speaking, it is illegal. It is by definition then money laundering. So the institution has a responsibility of really two pieces. One is, though it was rescinded, we follow the Cole Memo. From the Cole Memo, since in 2014 guidance, simply put, every dollar, literally every dollar deposit needs to be traced to a dollar worth of legal goods. Mm. So that makes it very complicated. And I imagine things like insurance are difficult to obtain, all the stuff that businesses need just to operate normally. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are certain things that let's say like credit cards, for example, right? Could a credit card company today, you know, MasterCard Visa have come out and said, no, we won't do cannabis. We won't support cannabis transactions. Is there anything necessarily preventing them from doing so? Not really. Just like just like today, there are there are banks that, that are federally chartered, federally regulated, that are banking cannabis. In theory, there's nothing preventing the credit card company from doing the same. Hmm. But that said, you know what? They are on record. They're saying, no, we won't do it. So that, of course, exacerbates the situation because now you have a lot of cash in the system. So you have a high risk with cash. And you pointed out like the ancillary trickle down effects of insurance, credit cards, loans, I mean, everything, you know. So in today's operating environment, everything is harder for a cannabis operator as compared to almost any other industry. 
So much uncertainty, so many unanswered questions, and a lot changing. I mean, when you keep track of the bills that are being introduced at state legislatures and on the federal level of how it's being discussed, how it's being rolled out in different places, there's a real lack of consistency and a lot of uncertainty. And then you have the rollout in New York. So cannabis, recreational cannabis was made legal. I believe it was two years ago here in New York. But the rollout has been, in a word, clumsy. How would you characterize it with all of the changing deadlines and new regulations that come and go and, you know, dozens and dozens of bills being introduced, it seems, daily in the state legislature, even in this session? How are you finding it? And what are your clients saying? What are the anxieties about this this very clumsy rollout? If, in fact, you agree that it's clumsy. Well, you know, Laura, you said we're going to be blunt, so I, yeah. <laughs> I will follow through. Yeah, I mean, it has been a little bit of a hot mess, unfortunately. Mm. And, and I do mean unfortunately, because I think there was a lot of hope, a lot of optimism pinned on New York specifically, New York State, New York City. If we look back at some of our original, so our original 10 ROs, the, the registered organizations, although technically now there's 11, <laughs> I guess, it's conceptually. And but, what do you mean by RO? Because that's sort of a term that's that's bandied about, but I think a lot of people don't know exactly what it means or what it signifies. Oh, sure. So simply put, when the when New York State had a medical-only program, mm-hmm. th- there were rounds of licensing. So first five, and then they added another five. Those original 10, we are now calling ROs, registered organizations. Right. So they were essentially sort of you know, grandfathered in, I guess. And of course, that, that to some extent, that is the heart of some of what we're talking about here in terms of clumsiness, which is, I think everyone thought they were going to be grandfathered in. And I mean, I realize it's interpretive, but I don't think that we just thought that. Like, it was literally in the linguistics. Right. But that has been a, a challenge of, like, what what is the actual status of the ROs and why are they not, why are they being prevented from rolling out any more than they currently have? So, yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, the a lot of that optimism has, has abated because, and I'm speaking from sort of an investor perspective, I think that now I'm starting to actually see sentiments swing the other way, which is something that in my 20 plus years of banking, I've never seen Hmm. when people look at New York State and they say, we don't want to invest in. And that's a scary thought. And that's (laughs) what you're hearing. Hmm. Yeah. And why is that? Is it the uncertainty? Is it the overregulation? Is it also the fact, I mean, one thing that's happened that I think everyone knows, even if you're not really paying close attention to the ins and outs of the regulations and what's happening in Albany, is in New York City, there are about 1,400 illegal pot shops, cannabis shops. That's almost six times as many illegal weed shops as there are Starbucks in the five boroughs. So people think, I think the regular guy walking down the street thinks, oh, this is what legalization looks like. It's these unnecessarily high-end shops. You don't know what you're getting. There's zero taxes being generated from these places. There's maybe three legitimate, two or three legitimate ones that have opened. But these hundreds and hundreds are just, is this what it is now? And also my concern is, since that infrastructure is so set up, and I know the sheriff, the New York City sheriff just seized about $262,000 worth of marijuana products. So there is a bit of a clamp down there. But, you know, with this infrastructure of illegal weed shops, do you think that's going to hurt the legitimate ones and keep them from getting their feet under them since there are all these other stores selling Lord knows what? (laughs) Oh, I mean, for sure. It's really, again, I'm going to keep using the term unfortunate here. Um, you know, I think tracing back a little bit, there's this conflation between legalization and decriminalization. Yeah. And you know, so parse that for us. Explain to people what the what the distinction is. 
Sure. You know, on surface, you might feel like, well, that they're very similar in concept. But if you think about it in practical sense, that they're vastly different. So legalization, of course, means that there's, there's a path. This is how you get licensed. This is how you stay licensed. Here's what you can or cannot do with your license. But decriminalization means you've taken away criminality. So if you think about it, frankly, that is the reason that you see illegal shops everywhere, because there is no, they're operating with impunity. Mm-hmm. Now, thinking back a little bit, look, we're a capitalist society, right? I'm a person that wants to get licensed. I want to open a, a legal shop. Well, I'm seeing that, I mean, look, there's four shops open, four legal shops open in the entire state of New York. So in other words, I look, if I'm an investor and I'm thinking about opening a legal store, what I'm finding is that that seems like a very difficult path to walk, right? Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you know, it seems like illegal shops can just pop up with impunity and they're operating in plain sight. I mean, literally in Times Square, we, we have, what can they do about it? Well, what kind of crime would you charge them with? Mm-hmm. Kind of a problem, right? Like, obviously, they're not licensed. Right. So is it code enforcement? You know, how do you do it? Now, to your point, one of the problems here is your your average consumer, right? Like, you're walking down the street. Let's assume you want to shop at a legal shop. Now, again, keep in mind, in the city of New York, there's three. (laughs) Right. So first, you have to go find them. And then, of course, a legal shop has to operate well legally. So they're they're abiding by rules that an illegal shop does, does not necessarily care to or need to. So as an example, and you might have seen, there was an article in the New York Business Journal recently where you can walk into an illegal shop and pay with credit cards. You can, huh? You can, yeah. No, not every one of them, but I just mean some of them. Wow, are, I didn't know. know that. I'm actually surprised. I mean, you know, in for a pound, right? Like they're just ringing it up like, like it's, you know, merchandise or whatever the case may be. Huh. So they have every advantage available to them. And, you know, it, it is a problem. It, it is becoming a problem. And, and, you know, Laura, you touched on this, and I think it's really important. If you think of people that were critics of legalization, now they're looking at the situation in New York City, New York State, and saying, hey, I told you so. Exactly. Right. It's like another thing that's making the city horrible in a lot of people's minds. And so that hurts not just the legitimate ones that will open at some point, but it also hurts the whole cause of legalization. Instead, if we were able to get... uh, Say you got the ROs online and they were able to kind of quickly roll out. I'm not sure what the number would be, but let's just say dozens of stores. And now it looks like an organized, you know, regular storefronts with security. And that is the picture that was sold when we talked about legalization. And what we're seeing today is not. Right. The other aspect is you have, okay, so it's nearly two years after recreational cannabis is legalized in New York State. The regulations, deadlines keep getting moved up. Money was supposed to be raised for equity businesses. That money has not been raised at all. So all of these, and then you have just regular Joes who want to open a business. I was reading about one up in Woodstock. He bought a property, this guy, and he keeps paying the mortgage and he's paying his attorneys. And every month he's seeing 20 grand, 30 grand go down the toilet while this is wending its way through the whole process. Not what people had signed up for. And then at, at the same time, on the other hand, you have all of these illegal businesses making money hand over fist. But there's no product quality control. There are no taxes getting paid. And frankly, that was a big argument for legalizing it. Hey, you know, yeah. people are doing it anyway. Why don't we support the farmers and the retail workers and, and small businesses? 
and regulate it and tax it. And that's just not happening. And I don't get a sense, and maybe you do, Peter, I don't get a sense of any urgency about this issue from our friends at the state level. Maybe I'm not talking to the right people. Are you getting that sense of urgency? Like, oh, this is a problem that we should fix before it gets worse, before the, you know, all of the horses are out of the barn. No, no, I, I definitely do. I, I, I Listen, I want to say that I think we have good leaders with good intentions. Mm-hmm. I think I think objectively we can all agree uh, that the rollout has not gone the way anyone intended. And but, that happens uh, in life. Things don't always go according to plan. So then but then yeah. what do you do about it is the question. You know, Laura, there was one thing you just mentioned about the growers, and I want to kind of almost take that to the next level. Mm-hmm. Uh, we rolled out 262 conditional cultivator licenses. Mm-hmm. So these are these like these are farms. <laughs> these are farmers that have in New York time, State. Yeah, time, money, energy, money. Put seeds in the ground with the crop, harvest it, right? And and look, that that was that was intentional because of course we needed to know that there was going to be products to put on shelves. But what didn't we do? Ah. We don't have any shelves. <laughs> so there are no so, shelves. <laughs> yeah. So think about all these farmers, um, and, and and mind you, there's, so there's all this one product. Thing a lot of these farmers, right, were converted from hemp. Uh-huh. What happened was when they when all the New York State hemp farmers, you know, cultivators, they all got severely hurt because the CBD market crashed. And when I say crash, like it, it, it got obliterated. Why? Because everyone's interested in the THC aspect. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, uh, well, you know, the market just went just went hot, like supernova hot. Right? Yeah. And right. you had a lot of people jump in. Yeah. Um, On CD, CDB. You know, I, I, and not, not now not. Be, why is that? I wonder why it plummeted so quickly. Well, you know, ironically, we, we see the same thing on the THC side of the business. Hmm. So let's say for the sake of argument, and, and, and here's the part that like, like, you know how they say if you don't learn from history, right? Yeah, it repeats we itself. Happen. Yeah, we've seen this happen in every market. Every market has has had this exact trajectory happen. Hmm. You get you get licensed growers come online, and there's not enough of them. So what do you do when you see that you're a grower, you've got ten thousand square foot? So you say, "Wow, I can't even like literally before everything is just sold out. Before I'm even ready, everything is already spoken for. So what do you do? Well, you increase capacity, obviously, right? right? But increasing capacity, again, keep in mind, these are grow houses. That's significant investment. And here in the Northeast, in New York, you're talking about an indoor grow house. You're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, controlled ag. I mean, this is not just a farm. This is not just throw some seeds in the ground. This is, <laughs> these are multi-million dollar, $30 million indoor grow houses that need to have controlled environments in order to be able to grow in our environment. In our climate. So... If you took 262 cultivating licenses and that's and they're realizing that there's not enough capacity and they all ramp up capacity, and then the state issues another 200 licenses, let's say, what you went from was like, you know, not enough to way too much. Yeah. 
This so, is so, what happened in the CBD market, basically. So is there a glut of product? Oh, well, I, I was just pointing out that the, a lot of our conditional cultivators have already lived through several very lean years in yeah. CBD. Yeah. And this was, this was the state's way of saying, hey, we got you. We're going to help you out by, giving, by, by essentially converting your hemp license into a marijuana license. But now there's no stores. Well, well, there's very few stores. So they're kind of being like, I don't know, doubly hurt, I guess. Wow. But are they still growing? I mean, but there's nowhere to put it legitimately? Is that a problem? Well, you know, so let's be ac- let, let's be very specific, right? Yeah. Uh, most of the growers, I think, sort of foresaw that that might be an issue. There was an uncertain retail market, you know, where are we going to distribute stuff? So most of them did not produce what's called jar quality flowers. They expected to extract into oil. So those guys that put in that investment to be able to extract, to convert to oil, to do nitro flush, they're fine. But the people that didn't, yeah, like they're just screwed. What do you do with your inventory? And, and there's, a, there's a finite shelf life. Right. Like any plant. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if some of them are going to the illegal. You know, look, look, I, I don't know that we should speculate on that. I think if you walk into the illegal shops, oddly enough, you will see products from out of state. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what you're what you're seeing, frankly, and, and oddly enough, some of these are illegal products from other states. Hmm. These are like metric tags. Is there a leakage? You know, maybe I would assume if you're a business person and it's do this or starve, you might be tempted to do it. Sure. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about this social equity, 150 million. So here in New York, there was a push to put 200 million dollars to folks who have, who are minorities, who are women, who have been involved in the justice system in one way or another, having to do with selling marijuana, to help them open their stores and to be successful. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the state put in 50 million, and then is working with a group called Social Equity Impact Ventures to raise the other $150 million. That deadline came and went, came and went to raise that $150 million, and apparently they didn't raise a dollar. <laughs> and so here is this wonderful, altruistic, I get the logic behind it, initiative to help people who have been justice involved, who are minorities, who, ha- who have been impacted by the war on drugs negatively to give them a leg up. You know, we can argue whether that's right or wrong, but, you know, I get why it happened and I get the the logic and the ethics behind it. However, it has failed and everyone's been very quiet about it. I mean, you'll see (laughs) elected officials at ribbon cuttings of stores and this is all wonderful. But then what about all of these (laughs) equity business people who are excited and ready and able to open their business and then there's just been nothing? It's true. It's true. It, you know, it, it's funny. You, you literally just said it. And I, I do think that that is the biggest problem in all of this has been the communication of it, the transparency of it. Yeah. Or like you're off, frankly. And again, you know, we're being blunt here, right? Uh, yeah. That that rollout has been has been very clumsy. I mean, look, no one is questioning the concept of it. You are trying to do a good thing. I get it. Mm-hmm. It just has not worked and they have not talked about it. And, and I think, um, you know, we all make mistakes in life. I think anyone understands this, especially if you've been in, in an elected office. Things happen. It's you got to talk about it. You can't just ignore it because you lose credibility that way. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, you know, here here's something, a little proof of thought. With with the line of credit, the, the, the SEIV, right, like you said, I'm not sure that even if the idea had worked to perfection, you know, they immediately raised $150 million. Mm-hmm. Now they have $200 million in aggregate. They started deploying, they're opening the stores. The the concept, frankly, was probably always a little faulty, if, 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 if we're being honest, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I kind of agree even, with you. Yeah, I had my own issues <laughs> like, with that. Like, does it really make sense? that you're going to have a business owner. So you're forcing them to take your loan, right? Mind you, it's a loan. It's not, it is a loan. You, they, they now owe you money. So they're forced to take your loan. You spent all the money because you used it to build out the location. To make matters worse, the state structure the TPI regs in such a way where you are severely limited in your ability to get any other capital. Ah, so, so, so you have saying. to you have to take this social equity loan. You cannot take another loan. Well, so that's not what they're saying on paper, right? Hmm. But if you recap, if you think about what I'm saying, that is in effect what is happening to you. So, so you're really now, handcuffed to this one option. Yeah. Now, recently, they've allowed they they've suddenly allowed car licensees to bring their own location. Now, so you I say card you licensees. People might not know what you're talking about. It's C A U. RD. What what do you what do you yeah, mean by that? Sorry. Yeah, so that, that is specifically the tranche that you're referring to. Someone right. with a marijuana conviction from the state of New York, in the state of New York, excuse me, and you're awarded this again, it's a very specific category of license. So, you know, you're you you qualify you, you check all the boxes, one of which again is is a, a record of conviction in the state of New York. You are then granted the license and granted a location funded by the state, by DASNI. Mm-hmm. But again, let's be clear, that is a loan. So you are, in effect, being forced to accept a loan from the state, right? They spent all the money. <laughs> it, it's not as if you got to choose how the money was spent. Mm-hmm. Then they took away your, well, I, I don't want to say they took away, they, they severely limited your ability to get any other capital because mm. of the TPI regs. Mm. As a banker, when I say that out loud, mm-hmm. I am aghast. Yeah, why? <laughs> that is why, why do we do that? Mm-hmm. So this is another sort of broader question. It is my opinion that overregulation of industry usually by government is usually, you know, sometimes you got to have it for pollution or public safety or exploitation or et cetera. I get that. However, I just was reading that there just in this legislative session, just since January, there have been 61 cannabis related bills filed in the state assembly, 63 filed in the state senate. Is this an issue of overregulation, of overthinking everything to the point that it's tied everyone in knots and it's doomed to fail? You know, I, I don't want to say that it's doomed to fail, but but I agree that like, wow, like some of these things. So so let me focus on the CPI thing, mainly because, you know, I'm on the banking financing side of the business. We recently put together a call when, when groups are getting together to comment on MRTA because there, there was a public commenting period. MRTA so is is the legalization, just so everyone knows. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. So that that's the regs. That that, that that's the set of law in, in the state of New York, which legalized you know don't use marijuana. So that that's the framework for for everything that follows. So the MRTA did allow for a public commenting period, mm-hmm. and I was part of one particular group, mm-hmm. which, at the risk of being immodest, I mean, this was the luminary of cannabis. We had regulators from other developed markets. We had attorneys on the line, experienced bankers, and we read the TPI regs. Yeah. And at the end of a 10-minute 
plus conversation, I said, I just want to point out something here. Between 20 plus of us on this call, we think we understand it. <laughs> so the best minds around this yeah, maybe kind of got what they, the gist that. of it. <laughs> we think yeah. we understand the TPM regs. Wow. Now, let me ask you, Laura, if I were to take this to a bank, right? Yeah. And and mind you, they don't just do cannabis, of course, right? Like they, they have the ability to choose from uh, on any given day. There's a slate of deals that they could or could not do. Would they choose to spend an hour reading the TPI regs, getting a legal opinion, or would they say, "Ah, forget it"? <laughs> hmm. Right. I mean, it makes you wonder. And I say this as a Democrat. Sometimes, I mean, I'm seeing some of the Republican proposals in other places are much more simple. And much more straightforward and I think are more more success eligible, shall we say. You know, I do think wealth creation through regulation is, is not capitalism at its heart, right? right. So, so I get it. You are trying to affect an outcome. We, we want it to swing the other way. We don't want big businesses rolling in, taking over the market, et cetera, et cetera. That said, I, I'm not sure that the path we chose makes a lot of sense. And of course, I think you're seeing that that is, that is now baked into what we're seeing. Why is the fund not attracting investors? Because it doesn't make sense. What, what an investor, ah. are there investors that are interested in that fund the way it's currently structured? Mm. I, I think most investors are looking at it thinking what I'm thinking, which is I'm not sure that that makes sense. Maybe I want to invest somewhere else. Right, right. Where there's less uncertainty and pretzel tying. I wanted to get your take on this as specifically as a banker. So among that huge raft of cannabis-related bills I talked about, Assemblywoman Crystal People-Stokes and Senator James Sanders Jr. have a proposal to create a New York State public bank that would bank for cannabis companies. Is that allowed, and do you think that's a good idea? You know, it's an interesting proposal. I, I read a little bit about it when Senator Sanders, I guess, first proposed it. This was a few years ago, I believe. I, I have seen that there's precedent in other states. Now, I guess, you know, like anything else, the devil's in the detail here, right? Mm -hmm. Like a public bank, generally speaking, by definition, a public bank is not a, a retail-facing bank, generally speaking. So it's uh. not as if I walk into a public bank and open an account, right? Like Peter Sue does not do that. The, the public bank holds the state's money and operates like, I guess, like, like a more like a middle market, you know, like the way we do, I don't know, immigration or we do support import, like, like those are public mm -hmm. banks. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So it's not like yeah. I could open my, get a credit card from the bank and then go buy marijuana with it. I mean, unless that is their intention, but I'm not aware that there is that kind of model out there. Like, like in other states, when they've proposed public banks, what the public bank does is hold the public's money. So instead of the state of New York opening the account at, you know, City or Chase, now the state of New York opens an account at its own bank. Mm. So the only thing that it's really doing is you're just streamlining where that money is going. That's all. Is there a benefit to the pub public in doing that? I, I guess I have to see what the final verbiage looks like. I'm not sure that I understand how that helps an actual business or a person. Right. 
Like you say, the devil yeah. is in the details, like all of this. So I'm on the board of a, a cannabis company, so I'm I'm watching all of this with <laughs> bemusement and, and great interest. And Peter, I can't believe it, but our time is up. And Peter Sue, cannabis banking executive, he's written for Rolling Stone to try to demystify and untangle mm -hmm. this, this web. And mm -hmm. I really appreciate you having on, and I hope that you'll come back as, as the story progresses. Thank you, Laura. All right. Take care. Take care. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. I actually have a radio show that's starting at WABC sun, coming this Sunday, 4 p.m. So it's Sundays, 4 p.m. And just to keep it simple for everyone, I'm keeping the name. Cut to the chase. So please like, subscribe, share, share your ideas. You can follow me on Twitter at Laura Curran 516 I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. Bye.